Ensign's personal log. <laughs> if anyone's going to read these logs, it's been about two seasons worth of this podcast. Q seems to think that I need to up the ratings. I'm playing along for now, but I'm desperate to try and find a way out of this. I've been on the same street corner in 1930s New York between some cement beams and what they appear to call flops, which I just think are apartments or flats, just figuring out how to use this interdimensional comms device, see if I can get some guests. At least I won't be alone in all this. If I can get this to work, I... I think I'm picking up a signal. I think this is actually working. My chances of dying this year would be 1.7%. It's exactly the same. Okay, so how was my guitar? I would record this when I was there. I'm really sick of this weekend's worst of over as kind of like a behind the scenes of the October 25th Space time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Welcome back to Temporal Trek. We are back not only for season one, part two, uh, we are back for the first episode of that season, but we are now in the 20th century. We have moved on. We've gone from the Big Bang to the 19th century for our first part of season one, and we are now starting the 20th century. It's a big century. We've got quite a lot of time incursions here. Uh, and as my host Q is, keeps on telling me, I have to watch all of these for some reason. But I am not going to be doing it alone today. As you heard, I was just uh, fiddling around with my communicator and I happened to get a signal. I'm hopefully going to talk to two guys. Um, I think the first one is Paul. Paul, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Who's that? Ah, fantastic. That's fantastic. Hang on a second, Paul. Just a second. I think the other one is Sean. That's me. I'm here. I'm right here. Ah, oh, brilliant. I'm talking to both of you. Thank you so much. This is great. Um, I've been stuck in some weird time realm, and uh, a guy has, has kept me here, and he's forcing me to watch history as some sort of TV show, and he wants me to, um, well, just sort of get on with it and watch it, but have some other people's opinions as well. Maybe get the ratings up on the show. Uh, will you help me out, guys? I think we can do that. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now, this particular episode of history that we're watching happened in the year 1930. Um, round about what time are we talking about right now? Where are you? We're in uh, the year 2020. 2020, 2020, 2020. Wait a minute. Wasn't that the year of the big COVID outbreak? Oh, my. Is it ever? If I remember my history, I think that is, isn't it? Um, I want to uh, introduce you to my audience, so if Paul, you could go first and introduce yourself, just let us know who you are. Uh, yeah, my name is Paul Wright. Um, I used to uh, do some podcasting um, in, in sort of the early uh, 21st century. Um, some people might have heard me from that. Ah, excellent. Ah, some other podcasting. I think I have to look out for that. Um, Sean, how about you? 
Uh, actually, I'm a podcaster as well. Paul and I actually did the Sci-Fi Waffle podcast together in, what was that, Paul, 2015, 2016? Yes, yes, about that. We managed to have a good 40 or so episodes of that, didn't we? Uh, we certainly did. And uh, I also currently host the Rusted Robot podcast. It's your uh, weekly dose of geeky goodness. And another podcast called The Soul Forge. The Soul Forge podcast is also life, living, and stupid things we do for love. Those sound like amazing podcasts. I might have to recommend them to Q and his buddies, actually. Uh, give them something else to watch as well. That would be very, very cool. Thank you so much for joining me, you two. Well, I've sent out your details when I uh, intercepted your communications. And uh, this episode is set in 1930. I believe in the production universe, it was called City on the Edge of Forever. Is that correct? That is correct. Fantastic. It's all lining up. This is working so well. I'll have to let Q know. Right, okay. So the timestamp for this episode is uh, beginning at 13 minutes and 59 seconds. So for anyone uh, at home, uh, just to remind you, as we're starting brand new for this season, 13 minutes, 59 seconds, the timestamp. When you are watching the Netflix edit, the Netflix UK edit, that is where the episode starts as far as our time jump is concerned. And uh, we begin as Kirk and Spock materialise out of thin air in front of a wall. In fact, in front of a Madison Square Gardens poster for a big boxing match. Um, there's a little thing about this because this will actually make us jump out of the time segment and into our history lesson because that poster gives us our timestamp. It gives us 1930. Now, the actual fight between Mike Mason and uh, Kip McCrook is complete baloney, as far as I can work out. It never actually happened. I have tried my best to try and find out when this took place, um, but that poster is quite infamous. Did you guys know about this? I did not. I believe it appears in a, uh, another series of Star Trek. It certainly does. In fact, it appears quite often in a lot of TV shows. This poster is uh, on the back lot of what used to be Desilu Studios' filming uh, area for a TV show called The Untouchables, which the film was later based on. So it first appeared in an episode of M Squad in 1959, uh, Mike Mason and Kid McCook in a poster. Slightly different design, but still the same information. Uh, is a Lee Marvin episode of M Squad. Then it appears in The Untouchables, The Untouchables, sorry, in uh, 1960 and 1961. Then it appears again in The Fugitive in 1964, and again in Batman 66, uh, when Batman pulls up in front of a theatre, as well as several other TV shows after that, as the Desilu Studios were being bought out by different companies. So that poster gives us our timestamp of 1930. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the history of 1930s, but it's just amazing that that one poster gets uh, cited so many times in so many different places. And I have one person to thank actually on Twitter, at Retro Remote. Uh, they uh, tweet about odd things that they notice in the background in uh, one film that appears in other films because of all the studios being shared. And this poster is one of those things. It was like a very long thread of all the times it's appeared in movies and TV. It's really fascinating to go into. And if you ever want one of these posters in your home, uh, it will set you back a cool $299.99 if you want to buy one. 
um, and that is a copy of uh, how it appeared in The Untouchables, not in Star Trek. There's a fascinating little history there. Had any of you guys heard anything about that or seen where I, it come from? Yeah, I knew, I, well, I haven't heard, heard all of that. It doesn't surprise me that it is in a number of different films because obviously, like you say, this is a, a set that is used for, for other uh, programs. Exactly. Uh, but one uh, thing that I did find out is that uh, in um, the episode called Past Tense, which I believe we'll be looking at at some point because that is a, a, a nice little time travel uh, episode, mm-hmm. um, in part two, uh, this poster was recreated yes. by Mike Okuda and Doug Drexler um, and used in that um, episode, but they had the same boxes, uh, but it was billed as a rematch. And it was their first rematch since Madison Square Garden. Yeah, brilliant. So, so the second fight that they had <laughs> was also had its own poster. So, I wonder if you can get that one as well. <laughs> it's only a shame that it never really happened. Otherwise, I could play some bets now. And when I get back to my own century, when I return, I'm going to be you know, quids in. I'll have plenty of latinum to spare. That, that'd be a cool piece of, um, you know, like, like I say, if you can buy them, yes. But if you can actually recreate it yourself and just hang it on your wall, that'd be. That is that is the ultimate nerd piece of you know, <laughs> amazing. Just that, or even like a t-shirt, that'd be good. <laughs> no, it, it astounded me that it had been in so many things. I think even in Starsky and Hutch, I think it was the last time it ever got sighted in 1979, and it was a two-second moment as uh, Starsky and Hutch are walking through a corridor. It's just in the background, and it had been moved from the studio into that area and the, the wall had been repainted green so it's the same wall but redone as far as i can work out and it's just incredible to think that it just got kept on getting moved around but never changed well i've just finished a rewatch of, uh, of that series Spotted that. Ah, well there you go you can go back again um i can't remember the name of the episode but on the feed on that twitter feed um, they have noted all the episodes and what time and where it gets seen and everything. Uh, so really uh, well worth a look if you want to sort of do a super sleuth and work it all through. Um, the poster itself actually does reappear one other time in Star Trek, in Enterprise, uh, in an episode that's coming up so- shortly, uh, Stormfront, so it's seen quite a few times. Right, uh, 1930, uh, this is the history lesson bit. As I've said before uh, on other episodes, this is the bare minimum of Googling I have done. Uh, It's just to sort of place us somewhere in history, just to help us out. Just the history for New York City in 1930, just to give you a sense of what's going on around our characters. 1929, just before, in September and October, a little thing called uh, the Great Depression happened, uh, which obviously impacts all of the the history from then onwards. Black Tuesday uh, occurred when all of the stock crashed and therefore uh, jobs were scarce, uh, life was very, very tough, and this all began with the United States and gradually worked its way around the world, uh, particularly setting off quite a few events uh, in Europe as well. So that's all the background uh, of what's going on uh, in the world. In March of that year, in New York City, 35,000 people gather on an international unemployment day and clash with the police. So it's turning violent. Uh, The streets aren't necessarily the safest place to be. In August of that year, New York Supreme Court Associate Justice Joseph Force Crater disappears and is last seen entering a taxi cab. He was declared legally dead a few years later. 
Now, he's apparently something like America's version of Lord Lucan. He just disappears off the face of the earth and is never heard of again. I hadn't heard this person before. Um, have you guys? No, uh, I can't say I've heard of that. I know Lord no. Lucan, obviously, but no. I, I've never heard of that guy or Lord Lucan. Oh, well, okay. Well, um, apparently he was linked to a lot of corruption. Uh, there was a lot of uh, mob involvement, so there's always that sort of theory going on that this was some sort of mob hit and he just disappeared, but they were never able to tie someone to it. But he just disappeared off the face of the earth and is in the league, uh, apparently, of like the top ten mysterious disappearances of the 20th century. Uh, in the same year, the Chrysler building is constructed, uh, the the founding there and is I believe still the tallest brickwork building in the world but I'll have to check that fact uh, again I couldn't find it anywhere else uh, and then lastly uh, the Carlisle Hotel which apparently is a, a very expensive place to live these days um, but it was the first of its kind as a hotel that was for sort of for residences and for businesses as well uh, and during this time of depression a business like that was something brand new and hadn't really been heard of before um, so the Carlisle Hotel which apparently is world famous now and is doing quite well at the moment uh, but that is all I could find for 1930s New York history uh, right so but that ends our history lesson so back to the episode um, Kirk is the first one to talk and he talks about recognizing the era uh, from old phot photographs and uh, he talks about the depression so we've already had our history lesson we already know that the depression is going on and Kirk seems to sort of be aware of that time period um, uh, it's straight into the conversation between Spock and Kirk trying to hide the ears and uh, trying to uh, find an excuse as to why a Vulcan is walking around New York City in 1930s. Uh, love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, uh, you guys watching this episode, it's sort of the first scene between them in this period. Um, your, your thoughts, your loves, uh, love of this episode, if you want to start now, uh, and thoughts on TOS generally, and then into this scene. Well, he's, he's obviously Chinese, <laughs> and, and, and the years can only be explained by a mechanical rice picker. <laughs> what else could there be, right? I, I, I had forgotten about that scene when I rewatched it there yesterday, and I, I actually laughed out loud. I'm like, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> I know, and I, I've got a bit of trivia about that uh, that particular line as well, but we'll come back. We'll come to it there, uh, a little bit later. It's always fun when they try to hide the ears. <laughs> uh, that's that's always like uh, one of the sight gags. Like, what? How are they going to do it this time? You know, you got to put on uh, put on a headband, put on a toque, put up, put on some kind of a hat or a robe or something. So it's always it's always different. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, as for TOS itself, uh, I love it. I've uh, been watching it since the late 70s when I was two and three years old on Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoons or whatever it was. That's 40 years ago, so I don't remember the time frame. But I uh, watched it all the time, and uh, I've followed it all the way through. And I love every incarnation, some more than others, but uh, it's, it's the history of the future, and I, I, I adore it. So for me, this was quite possibly the first episode of any television program that I saw that involved time travel. I, I can remember seeing this, I, I think, um, when I saw this, it was in the early 70s, so I think it was a rerun. I don't think I ever saw the original run of Star Trek. I was a little bit too young for that. But my father loved it, and he used to watch it all the time. And he introduced me to Star Trek, and it was with TOS. And I absolutely fell in love with it straight away. I mean, who wouldn't? I mean, you've got starships and laser beams and all this type of thing, <laughs> and aliens and what have you. 
and it was this this particular episode. I saw it the first time, and it was time travel, and you can stop things from happening in the future, and it was just an incredibly written story. It was brilliant, and it was so so gut wrenching at the end when you know to see that ending and see Kirk with his, the only woman he's ever loved, truly loved, mm-hmm. killed in front of him, and he had to allow it. It's, and the acting of, of those scenes are incredible as well. Um, so, yeah, when I watch TOS, it brings back happy memories of watching Star Trek with my father, who still is alive now and he watches it, watches it now. We've watched the, the new Picard series and, and together, and it's just amazing. Um, yes, there is a lot wrong with it. Yes, there is plot holes <laughs> everywhere. Yes, but, but this is the 1960s, for goodness sake. I mean, we allow those things. We don't allow the casual racism and the, uh, you know, <laughs> although were, to, to be fair, I mean, they were they were ahead of the game in some areas of that, but in others, it's still the 60s, so yes. the producers still had to, you know, defend the reason why they, you know, they have women there that look gorgeous all the time and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, uh, but this TOS is, is probably in my heart, my number one series, in my head, TNG would be my, my favourite book. This, every time I watch it, it just brings so much joy. And this episode is my favourite episode of TOS, um, quite possibly close to uh, my favourite episode of, of any Star Trek. And, and, a, and a cool anecdote that I have is I watched it last night uh, at my girlfriend's house. She has a six-year-old daughter. Uh, both of them do not like Star Trek or anything that's not uh, realistic. But they only like realistic things. So I said, okay, i got to watch this show uh, for a podcast tomorrow. And so they sat down with me. The girlfriend didn't pay attention at all, but the daughter watched the entire thing. And, and then we watched uh, the 2009 Kelvin Universe movie, and she didn't want to go to bed until it was over. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little minion. I'm, I'm, I'm converting her. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's my job as, as, a, as a Trekkie, as a Trekker, uh, to convert the, the younger generation. And I think I'm well on my way. You're going full Bond villain. Yeah, that's fantastic. You'll get your little white tribble and a, a turnaround chair. That'll be fantastic. Oh, I need that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Another another Star Trek fan, another generation. That's perfect. That loves that. And, the, and, the, and the other thing that we can say about this episode as well is Joan Collins. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean what else can you say? It, 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 it just stands out. I mean, I know everyone knows her from... Uh, Dynasty or Dynasty, I don't know how you spell it, uh, but um, I know that that's her famous show. That you know, it's her books and, and everything that happened afterwards. But this, it was just amazing to watch. You just forget that it is Joan Collins. You forget that she you know, she becomes Edith Gila. Exactly, and I think this this episode is is so well acted. I mean, you got to, okay. Allow for the fact that it's the sixties. You've got Shatner, who's obviously a stage actor, and most of his performances are based on stage acting. Mm. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, who's a classic you know, actor, he's, he's fabulous. If you see him in other things that he's done, he, he's really, really good. He never looks as though he's acting. Mm. Um, uh, DeForest Kelly, who did a lot of cowboy films before he came into this, um, he knows how to act. He knows what he's doing, and he is, um, you know, ranting and running through the, uh, <laughs> in the streets and all that is is really, really good. I mean, you know, you believe that he and his, his face is all pockmarked, and I mean, you believe that he's got this thing. Assassins. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. Come yeah. back. <laughs> the, 
best thing to say, I've actually got that in my notes, is the best thing to say to someone whilst you're screaming at them is, I'm not going to kill you. No, it's, it's it, I mean, you've got four brilliant actors uh, all at the top of the game, and Joan Collins, who's, who's I, can't, I can't remember how old she was, but she was you know, sort of in her in prime, really, mm-hmm. uh, to come in and do this you know, one-off you know, performance here, as she was at the time, trying to work her way into America and, and get the bigger... Um, uh, the bigger series, um, she she puts everything into this. You know, this is this is not just a oh, uh, I'm going to do this one hour episode of this funny thing called Star Trek and move on. Uh, no, she goes for it. And yeah, it, you know, she, the stumble that she she makes falling down the stairs that was her. That was no, you know, that wasn't a, um, a stunt double or anything for for either of them. That was that frightened me when I saw that. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness, she actually she actually went for it and she had, had to carry it. Mm-hmm. She had to catch it. So. Yeah, it was. It, it's so it, the acting is, is fantastic in this. Okay, well, unless there's anything else you want to say about TOS in general or just this episode, what we all know about the uh, controversy with uh, Harlan Ellison, the writer. This yeah. I I've heard of, but I don't know a lot of details. So please, by all means. Uh, well, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't re-look up the information, but basically, uh, Roddenberry had him uh, and other science fiction writers try to write most of the episodes because he wanted it to be a real science fiction show. Uh, Harlan Ellison had this whole idea where Scotty was dealing drugs and there was all kinds of things going on. Um, and it was too expensive the way he had written the teleplay. Uh, so Roddenberry and a few others rewrote most of it. And this caused friction between Roddenberry and Ellison for the rest of uh, Roddenberry's life. Um, it's just a lot of controversy and uh, hard feelings uh, and actually in 2016 they came out with uh, City on the Edge of Forever graphic novel The Teleplay as written by Harlan Olsen I- I've got it right here uh, I've never read it <laughs> but I was I-, I brought it downstairs to the podcast room just so we could reference it and uh, it's it's full color It's uh, it's got the original teleplay it's uh, according to the back here for the first time ever a visual presentation of the much-discussed, unrevised, unadulterated version of Harlan Ellison's award-winning Star Trek teleplay, The City on the Edge of Forever. See the story as Mr. Ellison originally intended. So it's, uh, it's quite it's Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's quite thick. It's uh, got a lot of full color. Uh, it's, it's very uh, graphic novel, comic book-like. Um, and I should probably actually read it one of these days because I paid enough for it. But uh, it's... Uh, yeah, lots of pages. Okay, should should we should we read this then? Uh, this is this is the uh, IMDb um, the, the version of what happened. Yeah. So or, or how it, how the story became. So originally, um, the, the then story editor uh, Stephen W. Carabastos got the job to rewrite Harlan Ellison's script, but his draft was not used. Instead, Ellison agreed to make a rewrite himself, which was a game deemed unsuitable. Uh, Gene Kuhn also got himself into the rewriting. And finally, the new story editor, D.C. Fontana, got the assignment to rewrite Ellison's script and make it suitable for the series. Fontana's draft was then slightly rewritten by Roddenberry to become the final shooting draft. Much of of the finished episode is the product of Fontana, who went uncredited, as did all of the other writers. Uh, only two lines from Ellison's original teleplay survive in the final episode, both spoken by the Guardian, uh, uh, which is uh, before we see uh, what we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. 
So two lines from the original script, and the rest of it is Fontana, and that's why it's such a good episode. Yeah. <laughs> that explains it. That's it. Um, I've, re- I've read a, a very brief synopsis of, of the original script. Um, I don't think you should read it, Sean. I mean, uh, if, if Scotty's Scotty's supposed to be a, a drug dealer, I mean, he does push alcohol on everyone, so it's not that unbelievable. Um, <laughs> especially when it's green. I tell you what, Sean, if you do read that that script, you'll have to do a podcast on it. <laughs> yes. It'll definitely be worth doing. That sounds like a lot of work. I just might not do that. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll go back on my shelf for another six years. <laughs> well, uh Thank you very much, guys, for uh, bringing that. That's a lot more knowledge than I had, so thank you very much. Um, we had Kirk and Spock. They were leading up to the uh, idea of uh, trying to hide the ears. Um, there are leering people looking at them, wondering who Spock is and, and what's going on there. Um, they try to cross a street, and Spock almost gets uh, run over by a car, which put me immediately in mind in a future movie, which uh, is coming up soon, also in this 20th century watch. Um, I'm surprised Double Dumbass on You didn't come out. Uh, at some yes. point that would have been amazing I, I felt the same thing <laughs> I mean it, it's still a phrase used in this century where I'm from so you know uh, we can use those kind of terminologies whenever we like it's just the way they talk here um, so it's absolutely fine um, uh, so that's when they uh, rob from the rich and, and give to the poor later um, and they steal some clothes but the uh, the police officer uh, is wise to them uh, and I love the way they get out of it. It's that classic way of just come up with a really dumb line and say, how how careless of your wife to let you out um, at this point. Now, we could give Kirk the benefit of the doubt. He knows the era, so maybe he knows that that's the way you're supposed to talk. Um, or do you think that that was the 1960s writing? <laughs> oh, that was definitely 1960s writing, as, as was the following chase. <laughs> It's just that music, that jaunty music. Every time they have to go on a little run and everything like that. That music was used somewhere else in another episode, and I can't remember. Oh, it was the um, shore leave. When oh. they uh, they see the white rabbit, I believe. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. But also, uh, when they, obviously the police officer, you know, they, they give the old death grip, I was going to say there, which is probably what it was called at the time. I think it was the nerve pinch, isn't it? And then he drops mm-hmm. to the floor. Mm-hmm. They then run off and they're getting chased. And they, they run off and they turn left. And they run to the next corner and turn left. And they run to the next corner and turn left. Turn left again and end up in the same alley that they've just come out of. <laughs> it's genius. Who would think that they would do that? That's why Kirk's the great technician. <laughs> It's true. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, maybe that was what he did in the Kobayashi Maru. Maybe he, um, uh, you know, he just went left all the way around the Klingon ships, and they had no idea what was going on. So it's fine. <laughs> Works every time. Works every time. <laughs> so uh, yes, they were on the run. Um, they get into a basement, and uh, they are uh, met by uh, the wonderful Joan Collins as uh, Edith Keeler. They, uh, they had a little interchange. In fact, the, the discussion between both the characters, I think, is fantastic. There's a, there's almost a one-upmanship. It's almost a very un-Spock-like way that he's trying to goad Kirk every single time. Like, you were going to have no problem explaining this. Perhaps the unfortunate accident that I had as a child. Um, all these sorts of things. And then Kirk brings it up. Um, he actually says, you know, at times you seem quite human. And even Kirk, you know, uh, Spock comes back to him and says, you know, there's no need to resort to insults uh, and things like this. Um, 
looking at what they've done with Spock um, in uh, Discovery and what they're doing, uh, obviously, uh, with that and how they're trying to sort of humanise him and things like that, do you feel that that line changes because of modern interpretations or what they've done in the movies? Go with Sean, because I have not seen Discovery. Ah. I haven't seen Discovery. I watched the first season. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Uh-oh. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of room for uh, interpretation with Spock. Uh, of course, you, you can't beat Nimoy's performance, uh, especially in the later seasons and in the movies. But uh, here in this episode and in Discovery, he, he's a bit different. And of course he would be because it's 50 years later. There's mm-hmm. It's a different actor. There's a lot of different uh, production changes in television performance and, and and script writing and all kinds of stuff as the years progress. Uh, but I, I think there's room for both. No, no argument from me. Uh, I was just um, purely when I get uh, lines from that and when you see the character and they're sort of acting different to how you sort of remember them from TOS, you may, it, it makes me think, that, you know, are the modern interpretations of Spock and different ways we've seen him in, say, the movies, um, it, it, does it feed into the character or does it sort of jar with it and it always sort of pops into my mind whenever I'm thinking of how these characters are talking does it fit with how they've always been portrayed and how they will be portrayed um, and it just it seemed that where he uh, where they brought up the idea that Spock is somehow dyslexic in Discovery uh, and how he's you know he's always fighting against this side of his humanity um, sorry spoilers Paul spoilers um, that you know the idea that Kirk is insulting his humanity or Calling him a human uh, just seems um, seems interesting. I think with what they're doing yeah. with the character. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. Uh, the whole dyslexic thing um, it, it gives more uh, nuance to the character. I suppose mm. I don't necessarily like it, mm. but I, I can I can understand what they're doing. They're trying to give more background, more meaning to the way he has been. Sure, excellent. Well, um, moving on. Uh, there is a moment where Spock is explaining how he sees time. There, there's a logic that time is a river with currents and eddies. Um, but the way he's saying it sounds very optimistic and almost emotional rather than logical. Um, you know, the idea that, that time sort of works in your favour, you know, things are going to be flowing the way you want. Uh, it seems a bit airy-fairy for what Spock would say as well. So it, it's further discussion of, like, is this really Spock? Is this the way Spock should be talking? And I suppose that might be something to do with maybe the Harlan Ellison side of things, although his lines aren't coming through. It, do you feel that that might have been uh, translation? But as sounds DC. more to me like a DC Fontana thing. Mm-hmm. She's better with characters. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you could put that down to the fact that, uh, A, he is half-human. Yeah. Uh, B, he is talking to a human, so maybe he is explaining it in human terms. Yes, that sounds perfect to me. Right, they start to concoct the plan of um, uh, building a computer, uh, and uh, Spock calls this place a zinc-plated vacuum tube culture, which is true. Um, you know, everything is that everything is zinc-plated. Um, personal bit of history for me. Um, Where I work at the Chatham Historic Dockyards, uh, there is zinc plating on uh, the roofing of some of the structures, uh, which came in around about the time that this episode is set. Um, So it's very true, and it is uh, huge, bulky bits of zinc that are are strapped onto these roofs. Um, So if Spock is seeing that, 
and he's being asked to create a computer out of uh, these bear skins and stone knives. Um, I, I would not want that challenge. That is the one time where a, a boss is coming into a meeting and asking you to do the thing that you cannot absolutely do. I don't envy him at all. I like that, yeah. Bear skins and, 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 <laughs> and stone knives. There's a, a line that pops up in uh, in Voyager as well, Janeway, <laughs> yeah, so it says that. But also, um, I, I, I thought this was very much uh, uh, Star Trek meets MacGyver. <laughs> Spark can do anything. Yeah, yeah, he really can. He just, he really needs a, a six pound uh, block of platinum. That's it, that's all he needs. Yeah, you know, just go to the grocery store, it's absolutely fine. It's just down the road. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> There was an interesting point when they first meet Joan Collins. In the background, the, the music changes slightly and um, it sort of has hints and notes of a song, uh, I Only Have Eyes For You. Um, I don't know if this is part of the production or anything like that, uh, but the song itself is a bit of an anachronism because that song didn't exist in 1930s. <gasps> shock horror, shock horror. Good night, sweetheart. Uh, Good night, sweetheart comes later, but when they first okay. meet Joan Collins, I Only Have Eyes For You is the first bit that plays, the, the few notes, uh, and it wasn't released to, until 1934 by uh, Ben Selvin, who also did Good Night, Sweetheart, which becomes sort of a theme for the episode. Um, so I just thought I'd point that out. You know, uh, there's, There seems to be a bit of a ripple in the time-space continuum. I'll have to have a word with Q, see if we can get it straightened out. Um, maybe, uh, maybe because these guys have appeared, they've, they've made a little ooh, eddy there. Ooh, yes. Yeah, so oh, the ripples in the river, yeah. Yeah, maybe they've had an impact on continuity. We'll have to come back to that when uh, we do our ratings at the end. But I just thought it was a nice little uh, aside that there's a song by Ben Selvin when they first meet her, which is different to Goodnight Sweetheart, and then another song by Ben Selvin. I don't know whether that's a rights issue. You know, it's just easier to get his music because of the age of it and things like that. Uh, but it was just a nice little, uh, little wrinkle there in the time-space continuum. Uh, because Kirk shows instant honesty with her and he just says that, you know, we're in trouble, we're trying to hide out in this basement, she gives them work, she's quite forgiving. She's a very forgiving soul straight away. And I think that kind of makes you love the character straight away. But I was wondering if uh, you have any thoughts the first time you see Joan Collins. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, it is an amazing thing. Where they, I love the fact that Kirk goes straight to the truth. He mm. looks at her and he thinks, I can't give this lady any BS. It's all, <laughs> God, I've got to tell her the truth. I've got to come clean. Otherwise, this can go you know, south fairly quickly. Um, and the fact that he puts his hand up and says, yeah, we stole these clothes, which, <laughs> uh, you know, he stole these random clothes which happened to fit perfectly. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, but then she then um, responds... With kindness, I say, well, right, okay, you have no money, you're on the run. Doesn't, doesn't want any reason why. Mm. He says, you work for me, you can stay here, and gives them a, a, you know, a, an honest job, pays them you know, a decent wage, I believe, uh, for, for that work, so, so they can at least afford, afford then to you know, you know, uh, clothe themselves, feed themselves, and also uh, get a bed for the uh, for the week. Um, so... It, it, it's. It, I like that idea because if that was a real situation that she was in, that she she doesn't know these people have come from you know, yeah. outer space and was. She's just seen two people turn up. She shows them kindness and generosity. They then will respond by working hard, which they did, mm. and hopefully changing their ways and becoming better people. Mm. So I, I like that in, in a person that's somebody who's prepared to take that chance and say, "Look, if I do something good for you, 
you do something good for me, and the world might change for you. So yes, I do like that. Mm. It's all based in a mission anyway. So that, yeah. um, one of my uncles used to used to uh, run a mission, and he's a very similar character. You know, he, oh. he was good in everybody. So I yeah, I get that. I like and I like that. I like the characters. I like the, the way that's written, and it uh, it pleases me. It makes me feel warm. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> she's very uh, she's very trusting and very empathic. Yes, absolutely. She she is sort of the embodiment of what I think. Star Trek is. I mean, it's the Star Trek ideals. Exactly, absolutely. Um, it sort of carries on to the next scene when they get their first bowl of soup. They have to sit down and listen to Goody Two Shoes. Um, and uh, uh, the, the gentleman sitting next to Kirk comes up with if she really wants to help a fella in need. And Kirk just comes straight in with shut up, shut up, shut up. Um, which, when you first watch that and you think, Wow, you know, this is a long time before Me Too movement. He's standing up for this woman. It's fantastic. Only for him to then turn to Spock and then say, "What? Well, I just want to hear what she has to say. And Spock all only has to cock that eyebrow and say, yes, indeed. And <laughs> and completely disbelieving it. So for, for those few moments where Kirk looked like he was defending this woman's honour and he was, you know... Uh, slapping back this man who is just trying to objectify her and then we find out that Kirk has his own reasons for that um, it's just a perfect Kirk Spock moment for me I think it's made that's made better by the fact that not long after that we'll come into this anyway mm. is um, is where he says he's in love with her yeah so it's not he wants to bed her straight away like he no. does with every other woman this is you know, I'm in love, and I, I want to hear what she's going to say. I want to, I want to know more about this woman, and you know, I want to get to, you know, even though he knows that it's not going to go far anyway. But no, I think it's 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 uh, an interesting uh, conversation between the two of them. Uh, but I think it's all well-meaning and well-intentioned. <laughs> I believe. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we get the the speech, the speech from Edith Keeler. Um, uh, you know, uh, if you know, if you're a bum, if you can't kick the booze, you know, just get out. You know, I want to, you know, really help. I think that mankind has got a great future. That we will travel the stars. That she is predicting all of these fabulous things in the future. Um, you know, little did they know, you know, landing on the moon, everything like this. Um, that she stands out, and it, it's one of those speeches that actually brings back a, a, a memory of an old. Uh, advert for the VHS tapes for uh, both the TOS series and for the TS movies which came out where it starts on that speech. It's actually Edith Keeler saying that mankind will travel to the stars in some sort of spaceship and it's just a look from Kirk smiling at Spock and then it goes into clips from the show and uh, you know the, the fabulous um, uh, way that the episodes have been restored in VHS, this brand new technology. Um, so it always brings back that, that memory. Whenever I hear her talk, talk and give that speech, that memory of the VHS cassettes and things like that, it just stands out in my mind um, as one of the key speeches, I think, in all of Star Trek. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's fantastic. Um, it, it almost seems a little bit unrealistic because how does she know this stuff? How does she, <laughs> like, where does she get these ideas from in the 1930s, right? But it's it, it drives the plot along. It... Uh, makes you root for the character it, it brings you closer to her because that's what we're actually watching so we we know what's happening we know the his, the future that's going to occur she's not we know she's not going to get to see it 
but the fact that she can envision it means that she's like a, a, a visionary character who we're going to root for. That's right, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's got to be done, it's got to be said, so that you know who the character is and why she's going to not make it to the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. And the reasons being, and all oh, she was part of this movement, etc., etc. Um, so, yeah, so it is a bit rushed. It does feel a bit sort of put in place and, and she says all of these things and you think oh come on you know, <laughs> oh, right okay we'll go with it. but having said that um, Sean in 1930 there was science fiction about at that time I mean there were writers writing you know sorts of science fiction films as well in the 30s uh, very early very early on so it's not um, impossible that she may have seen these things read a few things and started to believe that maybe there are little cream men and you know well, made of cheese that's but, true you know, it, it, that, you know, that sort of movement has got to start somewhere, and it, and it started from books, and maybe she's she's read the uh, the War of the Worlds, which was you know, forty years before then. I mean, mm-hmm. it's um, it, it's possible that she's got those ideas from there. You know, men have come from Mars and taken over the world. Yeah, okay, maybe there are people out there. So, and we know she likes going to the movies. True. Yes, that's right. Very true. So yeah, she could have got all that information from one of those. You're right. There you go. Makes perfect sense. She's not, she's not the one that started the, the whole thing, but she's she's part of the movement that take it further. Yes. Nice. Oh, we'll come back to the ideas of uh, starting a movement in just a moment. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, after the speech, uh, she sp- speaks to Kirk and says that she's found him a flop for two dollars a night, and Spock just looks annoyed at having to use all these colloquialisms rather than uh, actually get on with it and just say somewhere we can sleep. Um, the scene then cuts uh, to uh, Spock building his computer, you know, all the wires with the uh, electricity feeding off it. Uh, it's all very Frankenstein and uh, it's wonderful to sort of see all these vacuum tubes lined up in one long line. It, it reminded me a lot of um, the, uh, I believe in America they call it shop class. Uh, here it's DT or woodwork. Um, where we would just build planks of wood and just start nailing bits of wood to it and just say that it was our project. We didn't really build anything, we just sort of made it. And uh, it just kind of looked like that. Um, it's it, just this room full of just vacuum tubes for no reason whatsoever. It did make me think that if they'd gone back in time to maybe now and they'd made themselves or got ourselves a flop, and started building some random equipment which takes up a whole room and is sparking and fizzing and making lots of popping noises and their landlady just suddenly turns up. Um, do you think Homeland Security or anyone is being called? Uh, do you think that this episode could have gone completely differently? Yeah, do you think it was a, some sort of terrorist plot to, <laughs> to blow something up? Yeah. I mean, it's just, she yeah. takes one little look at it and doesn't, yeah, doesn't even flinch. It's absolutely fine. Well, yes. It's normal. <laughs> oh, it's his hobby. Uh, of course, it's hobby. Oh, yes. right, of course. Yeah. Uh, and of course, yes, as uh, Sean mentioned, we do need a block of platinum, uh, which we will find. Uh, but uh, Kirk will say that uh, there will never be a block of platinum. Uh, he needs to find a mnemonic memory circuit or build a mnemonic memory circuit. I did look into this, uh, and obviously it is tech the tech. It is Star Trek speak. Um, but there is um, uh, a company called Mnemonic Memory Technology who are trying to make circuits that remember things uh, as we do and are trying to uh, build a, a sort of, I don't want to say positronic brain, but a sort of a robot positronic brain. 
um, which uses mnemonic memory, so using uh, mnemonics um, to um, build and compile information as opposed to sort of file systems and things like that. I just thought it'd be a bit of fun just to throw that in there as well. Sneak into the basement, they try and steal some clockworkers' tools, uh, and again, uh, they break into it just like a pro. They get caught by the same landlady who's seen them building these giant machines, <laughs> and now they're stealing equipment. <laughs> I'm just, you know, in any other century, in any other decade, they would not get away with this. It's crazy, isn't it? A little, a little uh, you know, combination lock, and they said, oh, you did it like a pro. Anybody can do <laughs> <laughs> After that, uh, Kirk tries to lay on the charm, uh, and uh, she just completely bats it back. She sees straight through it, you know, um, uh, but she also sees the characters for who they are as well. She's very insightful. Uh, as you said, Sean, she's very empathic. She already picks up on the fact that Kirk, uh, sorry, Spock says to Kirk, you know, Captain, without saying Captain. Uh, That's my favourite line of the oh, entire show. Lovely. Even when you don't say it, you say it. It's like you've always been by his side and you always will be. Or however she says it, it, it just it gets you right in the feels. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect line, isn't it? And it sums those two up perfectly. Especially if you've seen all 50 years plus of hit that history, right? That's so true, that's you, true. You just know. <laughs> well, I've got all but that to come. Yeah, but not forgetting, this is only the 28th episode, so I mean, this is this is mm. still, okay, it's well established by now in 28th episode, but it's still really the beginning of their relationship. But yes, it, it does sum them up perfectly. Uh, we come to a scene where uh, Kirk is now taking uh, Edith for a walk, and this is where we're getting Goodnight Sweetheart uh, and so forth. That song was actually released before 1930, so it's not an anachronism. It's 1927 when it first came out. Ben Selvin. Uh, it was re-released after 1930 with the I Only Have Eyes For You as well. So it does come out 1934 as well. But 1927 is the first recording I can find of Goodnight Sweetheart. I think it was released as a B-side first, then re-released and became the A-track. Um, so it changes some of the dates as well. But it did exist at that time, so we could say that, you know, when they were walking down the street and Goodnight Sweetheart is playing, it makes perfect sense. That's when we get the 100 years from now. Now, Kirk is in flagrant breach of temporal directive here. He is telling her that in 100 years there will be a poet born on another planet who will use the phrase, let me help and say that it's better than I love you. Um, I think he's going to need a slap on the wrist. I think he's just giving away a bit too much. Uh, your thoughts, guys? I wanted, uh, I, I wanted to know who, who, who it was. Yeah. Like, in, in, in Star Trek history, are they going to tell us? I, I, they, they didn't. <laughs> and, and we never find out in any of the next 700 plus episodes, but it, no. it would have been really neat. It's, it's one of those lost things that we just don't know. Yeah, that's right. That would have been, that been good. But, um, but is he really is he really messing with time here? Because he knows that she's going to die. True, true. But what if she tells somebody? She says, "Oh, you know, the the, the guy I took out on the date. Uh, maybe it's you know Mrs. Miggins just downstairs, who uh, is in the other flop that she gave the the room to." And he was saying, "Oh yeah, he was making up this whole thing about a hundred years time." Uh, it turns out Mrs. Miggins tells the story to her daughter, who tells it to her granddaughter, and then it turns out she reads the book. Where let me help happens. Let's be realistic. This is Miggins is going to turn around and go, "Oh, is that man?" Really space again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because they're all they're all they're all sick of Edith's killers. Yeah, bull crap. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking about 
she she runs a friggin' mission for homeless guys. Come on, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's got two bombs downstairs. We reckon that they they come from space. Oh, she's <laughs> off. No, she's off again. Uh, There's Mrs. Miggins. I I saw them building a bomb upstairs. I could believe it's fizzing and popping and everything. They... <laughs> and it was her husband's tools that they stole from the locker as well. <laughs> They would have got away with it too. <laughs> 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 they drove off with this bloody van. <laughs> <laughs> with writing on the side. Mystery machine or something. That's right. <gasps> oh no. What if the mystery machine is the car at the end? <gasps> oh no. We never see the car. That's cool. Well, I've just found the title for this episode. Thank you very much, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, I need to find my place in the, on the notes. Um, <coughs> Edith Keeler must die. There we go. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. Right. Um, Edith Keeler must die. The first time we get it mentioned, the first time it's said in the script, it gets said again as well. I know that there is a band called Edith Keeler Must Die. I believe so. Yes, I've never heard any of the music. You guys? It's probably garbage. <laughs> I did keep telling myself I'm going to listen to some and then sort of maybe play it in the track. Maybe I'll do it later in editing. Um, but uh, every time I try and watch it, my kid needs a new juice or you know wants me to play Legos or something like that. Um, but uh, I will give it a listen. Uh, but sure. Edith Keeler Must Die. <laughs> Um, she becomes a focal point in time, which made me think that is Spock changing his mind about is time a river? Uh, focal points, it puts me in ideas of fire places and things like that. So is he changing his ideas on what time is and all that kind of stuff? Uh, but I'll move on from that because uh, I still can't get over the idea of the mystery machine. <laughs> right, we start getting uh, images of the future, <laughs> if I can stay on track. Um, if we start getting images of the future on the um, tricorder and we see that in February the 20, uh, 23rd on uh, 1936, six years from now, Edith Keeler will meet FDR, but then we get a burnout in the circuits and we don't get any more information. Uh, any thoughts on sort of this hanging sword, you know, that we think that Edith Keeler is supposed to live instead? Um, you know, is, are we seeing an alternate history? Uh, does this change the episode at this point, or are we still sort of unsure of what's happening? It, it gives us a direction, because he, he saw earlier her obituary in 1930, and, and then he saw the 1936 thing where she meets the president. So now she now they know for sure that this is the focal point. This is where history hinges upon this this one lady, and she's, she's the linchpin. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an incredible thing. I mean, basically, Spock has built this machine mm-hmm. out of... Old valves and things, but he can see alternative histories. Interesting. He can see histories or futures, if you want to say. Why? Why has he not gone straight back to you know, the Enterprise and gone, "Hey guys, I've got this great idea. <laughs> this little machine I can build that we can see what's going to happen if we change history here or change history there." It's a bit odd, but. Yeah, well, that's, it's just because he was recording what the Guardian was showing them, right? And and he, he recorded both uh, before and after McCoy had jumped through. So that's oh. how they got that information. That's a good point. 
That's true. Maybe they could be using this device uh, to watch the Kelvin universe. Maybe 2009 is just them watching the alternative history. This is their movie, uh, and they're watching it again. You never know. It's weird when they're, when they're watching it and they're looking at it and going, good grief, Spock, you've aged badly. <laughs> <laughs> they're complaining to the Guardian for all the lens flare coming in because they can't actually watch the movie properly. <laughs> uh, we find out both can't be true, so now they, they've got this... Um, They've got this focal point. They know that they've got a mission now. They need to figure out whether she needs to live or die. And we get the first mention of McCoy. Now, obviously, we are just watching this clip. We don't have any other context for this, but clearly McCoy has come back in the past and is going to be changing something. Um, what that might be, who knows? Uh, but McCoy arrives and uh, we get the screaming man. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to kill you. The best thing you can possibly do. Um, but it's the goody two-shoes guy. Um, after our little Me Too moment with Kirk, you know, we get revenge on the guy who was objectifying Edith Keeler. The, he's the guy that McCoy finds uh, and uh, smashes the milk and uh, holds yeah, his cream. Not, not only is he uh, a creeper with the ladies, he's also a thief. So yes. he, uh, when he phasers himself, he, he gets what he deserves, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... We've got Edith Keeler. She is the, the pinnacle of Star Trek and belief and everything like this. And we're just showing that if you, you know, steal from people, if you're a horrible person, you objectify women, you're going to die. That's it. That's the moral takeaway from this episode. That's what you're going to get. Um, Man on the Moon. Um, sorry, I'm just writing my, reading my notes aloud. Uh, <laughs> Edith Keeler and Kirk are on another date. And uh, this is where we get the take all the money and spend it on... Um, that you spend on war and death, and you make it spend on life. Um, just thoughts on that line, because it's another one of those ones that sort of stand out and often makes its way into sort of uh, the best of Star Trek moments. Yeah, I love it. Oh, Paul, you, you get to do this one. Sorry, I nodded off that. What were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> You're still thinking about the mystery machine, aren't you? That's it. I am, yeah. I'm reading my notes, actually. But uh, mushy, mushy, mushy lines like that pass me by. Ah. <laughs> no emotion here. It's absolutely fine. No, you're, it's, you're... it's them talking about the Star Trek feature in the show. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> I love it. Well, I find I find it interesting because obviously what we know in the future, when first contact happens, we get the description of what happened when the Vulcans first arrived and how it would change all of history and it would change the world. But there's already been World War Three. You know, presumably economies completely collapsed and all this sort of thing. So actually, what she's saying probably never came true. You know, they never spent the money because it's supposed to. You know, the Vulcans arrived and it completely changed us. They didn't learn their lesson and start spending money differently. They just changed the culture. So really what she's saying never really comes to pass. Well, that's that's the way I read it, at least. Back to McCoy. Uh, he, uh, he still seems to be quite intelligent. He's hopped up on some sort of drug. Uh, as we later find out, Edith Keeler says that uh, you were drinking from the wrong bottle. Uh, but he's still very intelligent. He's able to put together that, you know, it's the cement beams, you know, he's holding the guy's head and so he can feel the lumps. He's able to work out the constellations, that he's a biped, um, that it's a modern museum perfection. Um, so he's really switched on. Like, he, he's not believing in what he's seeing. He's maybe thinking that this is some sort of elaborate alien hoax or something like that. Even though he's off his mind, he is really, really intelligent. And it's one of the things that I love about McCoy. Um, any more to say about that scene? No, it's pretty good. He's in a paranoid delusion. And, uh, <laughs> he, he plays it perfectly. He does play a madman really well. Yes. Yes, he does. He really does. 
Um, I did wonder if the guy dies from the phaser, um, does that create a new timeline? I, I thought the same thing actually. Ah, like, uh, like he's he's gone now. How does that change history? But he's a bum, so of course he's going to have no impact on society in any positive <laughs> way whatsoever. So he could just go. It's fine. <laughs> That also applies to uh, another future episode, doesn't it? Time's Arrow. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we'll get to that. Oh, yes. Yes. Time's Arrow is coming. Uh, that's already recorded. Um, as uh, people are listening to this episode, they should have obviously listened. They should have gone back and listened to the previous seasons as well. Uh, but Time's Arrow, there's a lot of overlap, I'm seeing, between that episode and this episode. Um, you could argue, with that episode, we had a time loop element. So it was always going to happen. So whatever happened in that point had to happen to then create our future. But there is that bootstrap paradox. There had to be the original timeline before the loop happened for everything to start. Um, so you have to kind of wonder if anyone dies or anything happens, does that still change the other reality? Um, so that might feed into our rating at the end. Um, but it just seemed a weird uh, feature on the phaser that you just push the dial right up to the top and it will vaporize the person holding it. Yeah, the, the effect was horrible. <laughs> but it, it, it got its point across. I think. Yeah, but it does give you a good five or six seconds warning. True, true, yeah. And, and you'd think that um, a man who is a, a bum would still think, maybe I shouldn't be holding this. You know, that whining noise is probably a bad idea. But maybe he would have taken out half of New York if he just sort of let it go and thrown it. Um, but I thought it was an interesting feature. You know, why don't we see that more in Star Trek? They just turn it up, throw it like a grenade and get out of there. Um, quite an easy little weapon there, you know. If, if phasers aren't working normally, vaporize whatever happens. There you go. 30 hours of work uh, produced uh, the computer. So uh, Spock is, is pretty industrious. He got there in the end. But we finally have uh, the, the full discussion of the pacifist movement and how Edith Keeler is going to change history, uh, not necessarily for the good. Um, because of this pacifist movement, she convinces the US to stay out of the war. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but this gives the Nazis a chance to work on their A-bomb experiments, and they get there first. And there is the line, she was right, but at the wrong time, which is one of my favourites as well. Um, and then we get, I am in love with Edith Keeler, uh, and Edith Keeler must die again. So talking about the past pacifist movement, do we believe that that's even possible, you know, U.S. entry into the war wasn't really about what was going on in Europe. It was more about Japan. And, you know, would any government in the world, no matter how pacifist, no matter how uh, peace-loving they would be, if their Pearl Harbor base is bombed so heavily by Japan, would they have stayed out of the war? Do you think that that would have been inevitable? Thoughts, gentlemen? <laughs> well, well, we, we know that uh, the U.S. is a Christian nation, and Jesus said to turn the other cheek. So, yes, they would, they would be pacifist, and they would stay out of the war, and Germany would win, and all the bad stuff would happen, and we wouldn't have the Starship Enterprise orbiting this planet. That seems to be how I remember. That seems to be how I remember reading history. Yeah, I think that's always worked. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah, I mean they were dragged into uh, you know into a war with Japan, but at the same time they were they were still trying to you know Churchill was still trying to get them to come and come to our aid and add more and more you know, troops to the uh, to the battlefield. So I think really they were, I mean they they, they didn't want to. 
mm. to get into a, into the war originally, you know, and, and it, it took let's say a little bit of underhanded play by Churchill to um, maybe get a, one of the ships sunk with a lot of people on it, yeah. um, civilian people on it, um, to you know make them decide that well actually yes we will come come into this you know that they're attacking us now so. It may be that the pacifist movement would have had a bit, a bit of a, a run and, and it could possibly have worked. I mean, look what happened with Vietnam as well. A lot of mm-hmm. people wanted you know, them to come out of there. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's possible. Ah, okay. Cool, 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 cool. We get uh, McCoy being nursed by Edith in the next scene and uh, he's regaining his sanity, but he do- still doesn't believe that this is real. And we get a I'm not a doctor line without saying I'm not a doctor. It says, I am a surgeon, not a psychiatrist. He still thinks this is all a delusion and he's not going to talk to her friends who seem to talk the same way as he does. This leads me into a whole thing about, uh, you know, if this were made today, if this episode were made uh, as a modern Star Trek um, uh, time travel caper, maybe a miniseries, say, would they have dragged this out for six episodes of like the French farce that McCoy comes in one door, but Spock's leaving out the other one and then vice versa? You know, it, is there something magical about the way TV's made in the 60s that they've done so much and we believe it and it's all condensed into one nice, neat episode? Or do you think it would have been served better by stretching it out, making, you know, the, the unfortunate situation they keep on missing each other and things like that? They would have needed more people. This is what I said about Time's Arrow. And Time's Arrow works over two episodes because there is a a large number of people, a large number of characters that are all having their own little individual stories. It's possible you could drag out, with more people you could drag it out to, to, to a, a few more episodes, but really, ultimately, it's quite a long way just to go to kill one person and, and have that resolution at the end. Um, it works perfectly for me as a, as a one-off episode. I do like that scene where McCoy comes in, all staggering all over the place, and either killer takes him out and immediately box in the background. Yeah. It's, it's perfect timing. It's brilliantly done. Uh, you sit there going, "No, all for the sake of that hat over his ears. He couldn't hear McCoy because surely with those ears he should be able to hear him. True. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, but but back to your point. Uh, condensed. Yes. Uh, a one-hour. TOS episode, Deep Space Nine, this would have been a three-episode arc. Excellent, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really would. And I, I, like past tense where they're in the sanctuary districts. Absolutely. Which we will be coming to in our next episode, past tense. Uh, it's going to be in 1930 as well, but just over the, the side of America, on the other side in San Francisco. Um, right, uh, the catch on the stairs. Uh, you mentioned, Paul, earlier that this was uh, uh, an improvised... Uh, scene with uh, Joan Collins uh, and William Shatner. Um, was there any more to that? Did she sort of try and sort of coach herself to do it, or is there any sort of behind the scenes on that? I've not read anything. I was hoping to to see something about that, about mm-hmm. whether they did you know, did their own stunts or whether you know, they. It is a, a a frightening trip. She does really you know she she does deliberately bend her knee and go you know towards it. She's stuck her hand on the handrail, mm-hmm. but it still relies on Shatner to catch it. Uh, it's a big, between two actors. That's an amazing bit of trust you know, to to do that because it could have all gone wrong. I mean, she could have come at him too quickly. He loses his balance. They're both down the stairs. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, you know, you would know because I've watched it a couple of times, thinking, is that Shatner walking up the stairs? But when he 
he turns and you can see it's him and she's face on it's her so it is you know, it's not her it's crazy it's, that, it's that, was, that was take 47 <laughs> 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 oh god yes just don't want to see the bruising absolutely not no um, yes uh, there was the, the talk um, after that scene when, when he catches her from Spock saying you know that could have been the moment when she died did you believe that that was going to be the moment or do you no. feel that it's signposted too much that it's no, a traffic accident. There's, there's two reasons for that. One, um, he uh, w- he's already mentioned, I think it was an automobile accident. Yeah, or yeah. Something yeah exactly. Like. We knew and, that already. And B, he's, he's already read the obituary, so he yeah. should know what's going to happen. That's right. And when. Yeah. To, to mm-hmm. So exactly. he, he knows exactly when she's going to die. Well, maybe he doesn't want to tell Kirk that in case it tips him off and he, he does something differently. Mm. Um, but no, he, know, he, he, he shouldn't really have come in saying she could have died then because he knows that she wouldn't yeah no, I agree with you it felt like false jeopardy like we already know it involves a car you know maybe you could sort of string out an explanation that because she falls she hurts herself she gets placed in an ambulance the ambulance is placed in an accident but it seems a bit of taffy pulling you're taking too long to explain how you're going to get there um, you know it's a car accident you know it's it's probably she's going to get run over as we were sort of foreshadowing with Spock almost being run over earlier on you know we can go that far but it, it did feel a little bit false jeopardy but still you know watching it, it is such a believable performance it still makes you think oh god is he going to catch her um, it, it's a fantastic scene but yes um, right uh, we go back to uh, McCoy He's now being uh, flirty. The quadrazine has uh, worn off. I think he's just as bad as Kirk. He's so much of a ladies' man. Like any scene I've had so far. Joe Collins. It's Joe Collins. <laughs> At the time of recording this, um, I know Paul, you've you've uh, heard the latest episode of this podcast and that what he was trying on with Zara Beth, and here he is trying it on with uh, with Edith Keeler. He is just as bad as Kirk. I'm, I swear it. He is terrible. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I mean he's a you know, southern country gentleman, uh, you know, a doctor. You know, he, uh, you know, and he's getting on a bit. And this is a young girl. It's not creepy at all. <laughs> um, they have this lovely little back and forth, and he talks about you know the bottle that he drank for was too much, and then uh, the Clark Gable movie, Clark Who. Um, which uh, which obviously I don't know anything about. You know, I'm a character from far in your future, uh, Clark Gable, but uh, I did a little research. Apparently he was an actor, quite famous. Never heard of him. Um, yeah. quite, quite famous a few years later. Not quite so famous <laughs> right at that point. But never mind. The original person they wanted to reference was a little bit too obscure that nobody in the 60s would have known. Ooh. So um, from the 1930s. So they went with Clark Gable, who they knew. But wasn't quite in the big screens yet. Ooh, have, we, have we got another time ripple here? This is interesting, so we'll have to come back to that as well. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, now we get uh, Kirk and Edith going on their next date. They cross the road, and she mentions McCoy, and we get the startled reaction from Kirk. McCoy! He sees Spock's coming out. He runs across the road, leaves her on the other side of the street. He knows it's a car accident. Why he does this, I don't know why, but he gets but he back. he told her to stay there. Exactly. He knew what was going to happen, so he says, right, you stay there, don't move. 
and but he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't do it. He she she went over there. She saw that you know McCoy had found Spock and Kirk, and they're very happy. But McCoy notices what's going to go on, but he holds McCoy back, and Kirk just lets it happen. You hear the scream, you don't see anything, and I think it's still one of those scenes that stays with you when you watch Star Trek. Um, it's always been there. Every time I watch this episode, it still hits home. How was that scene for you guys? Do you feel like it works? Anything that doesn't work? Well, it, it, it works. It's, it's uh, probably one of the saddest uh, deaths in Star Trek, but also the most necessary in order to uh, keep the timeline intact. And that's why it's one of the saddest, because it is necessary, and it's just, it is heart-wrenching. You see his, his anguish that he, you know, he can't look... He knows that she's dead. There's no point in looking. He knows that. He's not going to run to her, to her aid because he, he can't. And he does love this woman and he has had to you know, do that for the greater good. It's, it's a horrible, horrible scene to watch because it, it is so powerful and so well acted. It's and the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah. That he couldn't cheat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that that ending would have happened today in modern TV telling? Do you feel that they might have fudged it and perhaps said, well, you're going to die, found a way to explain it to her and take her back with them to their time. So she's removed from the timeline. What happens? You know, she doesn't have to die. They would have found a happy ending. Do you feel that that might have happened or would they stay with the, the hard hitting? Uh, they're not They're not as brave now as they were back then. Yeah, there's two trains of thought there, though, isn't there? I mean, I, I would say, oh, yeah, the snowflakes that we've got around at the moment, you know, <laughs> oh, nobody wants to see a, a person dying. Yes, they take her up and, and and help her out. But also, there's the fact that in the back of your mind, you're thinking Quentin Tarantino R-rated Star Trek movies. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you would see her get, not only get hit, but fly through the air and smashed mm-hmm. against the wall of blood everywhere. Oh, definitely. So, so it could happen either way, really. Good, good thinking. And we get the strings of Goodnight Sweetheart as we close out on timestamp 48 minutes and 10 seconds. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That was a wonderful discussion there. I think the Mystery Machine, I think, is a highlight for me. Um, <laughs> so we uh, we enter into our uh, ratings area. So we've done, uh, on our L cars, we've done the location. We've done 1930s New York. Now we're looking at continuity, the effects on it. Now we've highlighted through this discussion a few things that might stand out, um, you know, uh, joking references and things like that. But do we feel that when Kirk and Spock will return to their time period with McCoy, are they returning to their universe? Or was there something that happened that perhaps means it's slightly changed? Is there any evidence you think that might be... Um, that every Trek episode after City on the Edge of Forever is a slightly different universe to what we saw previously in TOS. Well, the, the Guardian does say all is as it was, and many Thank such you. journeys are possible. So we're supposed to think that everything's the same. I, I think I think you're right. I think that it would be the same, because although all this has happened, it has all happened within a hundred yards of itself. It hasn't really gone out of the studio, if you want to call it that, but the block that they're in, it's all pretty much been inside the building with people who are not likely to go out and do other things that would affect the future. So I think it's, I think they've got away with it. They've left, they haven't left a phaser behind because I got melted with a guy. Mm-hmm. They, they're, 
valves and things are all technology that is you know usable then but is in this building which you can imagine the the next owner that comes along goes what's all this rubbish here that's you know, and throwing that away yeah so i don't think there'll be anything there i think that, i think you go straight back to where they were as they did and it all will be fine excellent yeah i was going to use that exact same thing um from both of you that if the guardian thinks everything's fine he is all-knowing, he is all-powerful, that he would know if there was something wrong that he might would then have to sort of send them back. And yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. So I think on continuity, there is no impact. We all agree? Yes. Yes. Fantastic. Right. Uh, alterations. <laughs> um, with alterations, it doesn't have to be that we have to change the episode in any way. I think we all agree, but we love this episode, so we're not really going to change too much. Um, would you want to see anything else? Would you ever see want to see perhaps a revisit of this episode? You know, kind of um, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstein style, that or Trials and Tribulations, as we were. You know, another crew comes in and they're in the background, and you know, there's references to it. It's happening just down the street, uh, but there's they're on a completely different adventure. Is there anything when watching this episode you thought I'd like to see that explored? Um, you know what. Um... I've always wanted to see another Guardian. Uh, I was going to say Guardian of the Galaxy episode, but uh, <laughs> now but, there's a spin-off, <laughs> yeah, right? But but I think because it's self-contained and uh, the Guardian planet is supposed to be a secret, I, I think it would be diluted. It's like when you go back to the mirror universe; you're just uh, drawing from the same well and diminishing returns. So one and done. Forget about it. It's good. Excellent. Yeah, I'd say the same. It's uh, it it's perfect as it is. Leave it alone. I say perfect, but there are, there are obvious things, errors and things in it, but no, it's it's a fantastic little one-off um, episode, uh, leave it alone. The Trials and Tribulations uh, idea is, is a nice one, but um, let's do that on another episode. I don't think, with the seriousness of this, it doesn't have that same comic feel. You couldn't have people going back and saying, oh, you know, these, these uniforms are all strange or whatever, it, it doesn't work. So yeah, no, I think I'd go with Sean on that one as well. Perfect. Uh, I, I'm the same. I wouldn't want to mess with the episode in any way. I wouldn't want uh, another episode when it works so well uh, on its own. You know, you again, as as you said, Sean, you dilute that idea. You completely change it. And if you have other scenes going on, it kind of wrecks the importance of of who Edith Keeler is. You know, if she's so important and if she is such a focal point. Why is there another adventure happening just down the road? It doesn't seem to fit uh, with that thing. There are plenty of other episodes I can think of in my head that um, would be better served with another adventure for us to watch and completely forget the episode going on uh, in front of our eyes. Uh, I can think of uh, a fair few things in uh, TNG Season 1 that I probably want to do that with. Um, but um, uh, we, came, we did mention it, um, the idea that there is uh, maybe a short trek of the writer, the writer set a hundred years from then, so in 2030, um, so you know, just ten years away from us, uh, in another planet somewhere, writing his fiction, uh, and maybe you know, uh, a young Kirk, a young boy, uh, picks it up a copy uh, on his pad and downloads it uh, and reads it for the first time. Maybe you know, a nice little romantic story. Completely means nothing to a non-Trek fan watching it, but to Trekkies, I think it would be a fun little uh, short trek. I think for me. I'd like to see that. That's right, and that's just after he's watched the um, the the, uh, the boxing match of uh, the grandsons of the two. Um, of course, boxers. zero G. Yeah, the, the complete <laughs> boxing fight. Yeah, 
Uh, fantastic. Okay, then. Uh, so that was alterations. So recommendations. So we've got three strands to this. Um, do we recommend to Trekkies for the short clip we watched? Do we recommend to non-Trek fans? And do we have any evidence as to why? And then would we recommend, on the grand scheme of things, does this clip deserve to stay where it is? Do we need to watch it where it is? So firstly, do we recommend to Trek fans? Yes. yes. Yep. So that's the three yeses. Fantastic, yes. It's City on the Edge of Forever. It's usually either the top or in the top five of best episodes ever. So there's no way. There's no way you're going to miss it. Um, to non-Trek fans. Now, Sean, you mentioned that the kids wanted to watch it. Uh, yeah, we. Um, I, I sat down with the six-year-old and I said, we're going to watch some Star Trek. And, and normally she's like, I don't want to watch any of that stuff. But she did. She watched the whole thing. And, and then um, it was on the Netflix thing. It showed all the different Star Treks. And, and she's like, we should watch another thing. So then I put on the 2009 movie. And uh, she, she watched that and she wanted to keep watching it. And I said, it's, it's getting late. We could turn it off. We can watch it tomorrow. And she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to bed until I finish this. So it, it, it worked. It, it was good. And the reason it worked is because it, it's 100% Star Trek. It has everything that you want to show a new person uh, what Star Trek is all about. It has science fiction at the beginning, um, you know, going through the, the, the uh, time machine. It has um, a, a little bit of humour. There's a few funny bits in it, police chase and etc. The, the actual story is a time travel story. Again, yeah. science fiction. Nice bit of science fiction there. Uh, and at the end of it, it's all a, um, a happy ending mm. in the sense that we get back to the ship, but also with that tinge of sadness that obviously Kirk has lost you know, somebody. So the, the actual interpersonal um, performances and char uh, character interactions are brilliantly written. Um, so it's, it, it has everything that you'd want in a Star Trek thing to show that. So if somebody says, what is Star Trek? Show me one episode that is Star Trek. That's the one. Yeah. And that's why it's it's so well received and so well loved. Yep. Yep. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, there are so many standout lines for me. There are, there are uh, speeches that um, sum up all of Star Trek. And there are so many times when I've tried to convince people to watch the show and they say, oh, it's always a happy ending and, you know, it's so unbelievable, it's too optimistic and all this sort of thing. And then you get Edith Keeler dying. I think that episode, and I've shown it to people who don't like Star Trek, and that episode, at that moment, completely changes their outlook on what Star Trek could be. Unfortunately, yes, they are right. A lot of episodes do have a happy ending, and it's completely happy, and it's a total reset button, and they're all laughing at the end, and there's a little twiddly music. That's true. But then you get gems like this. And I think for me, that's why it has to be in the recommendation. If you were making your brainwashing kit for a new person coming in uh, and you wanted to show them everything Star Trek has, I mean, this almost has to be the first file, doesn't it? I mean, this has to be the first thing you show them um, just for that. Um, another reason I would recommend to non-Trekkies is also, as I was watching the f uh, this on my phone, headphones in, because obviously the kids are trying to do their schoolwork at home at the moment, um, and um, my kid who is obsessed with 1940s and World War II saw all of the decor and the background and all of the cars and things like that. He said, oh, are you watching a war film? And he wanted to watch it. And I sort of took the headphones out and we watched a little bit. Obviously he had to get back to his schoolwork, but 
he was engaged by the fact it wasn't spaceships and aliens and weird, funny costumes. It was something recognisable. So I think that, because it breaks away from what Star Trek is, but it still gives us a Star Trek message, I think that's why it stands out, for me, at least. So, um, last recommendation. On the grand scheme of things, I think I know where this is going to go. Do we recommend, does this have to stay in the rewatch? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has to. Yep, that's fair enough. It was a silly question, but I have to ask it because there's no, there's definitely going to be episodes coming up where it's a definite no. Um, so uh, <laughs> thank you very much, guys. Um, you are my first guest on this show. Uh, this comm device is working perfectly. Um, I will have to let Q know uh, and uh, get some feedback on uh, how we can get other guests like yourselves, pros in podcasting, uh, dare I say. And um, no, well, I'll see. Uh, there must be a pro setting on this somewhere. Uh, I'll have to find out where it is. Um, but thank you very much. All that remains is the last criteria RS, our setup. And uh, join me next episode for uh, Past Tense Part 2. We're actually still staying in this year, 1930, but we're skipping to the other coast of the US. We're going to San Francisco. And join me at 10 minutes and 8 seconds. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. That actually felt really good. Want some more guests? This was fun. At least I won't have to go through this on my own. What's that? signal I just recorded just seemed to be interfering with the bubble. It's destabilising. It's it's sending some of the broadcast back in time. It, it seems to be picking up a feed called the Rusted Robot Podcast? So Network, your station for all things geek. You're listening to episode 289 of Rusted Robot Podcast for Sunday, April. Wait a minute, that was Sean's podcast. If I can use the bubble to send messages back in time, what if I can send it forward in time? What if I can send an SOS? I need to keep this from Q. I need to keep this from all the godlike entities. I'm going to try and make a break for it again this season. Oh man, I hope this works. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But, if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.